Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. We've had a really busy couple of weeks. We just reopened our studio for in-person customers, so there's been a lot of effort going on getting everything organized, and I also added a new video section to our studio website, gardenofyoga.com.au, as well as setting up monthly memberships, so there has been a whole lot going on. We've been busy putting together new protocols and communicating them to everyone, but it has been great to finally see people in person again in the studio. It's been fantastic. We do have a small space, and so we're still running some of our classes online as well as in person at the same time, so it's been an interesting transition for us. I'm curious though, how's the changeover been for you as a teacher or a studio owner or even as a student? You can reach out to us via our Facebook page, The Flow Artist Podcast, or send us an email at podcast at flowartist.com. We'd really love to hear from you, hear your experiences. All right, so our episode today is an interview with Cora Giraud. Cora is a yoga teacher and host of the Teaching Yoga Podcast. Cora is originally from Canada and is now based in Sydney. We had a great experience when Cora interviewed us for her podcast, so we decided to continue the fun and catch up with her again. She's got a lot of experience founding and running a yoga studio and has some really good advice on the business of teaching yoga. There's plenty of great information in this conversation. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, Yoga Australia, registering teachers and training courses to ensure that everyone in Australia has access to quality yoga teachers. All right, let's get into our conversation with Cora Giraud. All right, Cora, thank you so much for catching up with us today. Second attempt, we're really <laughs> glad to get the chance to talk to you. Could you perhaps start by telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up? Yeah, and thank you for having me. I feel really honored to be on your podcast. I you can probably tell from my accent, grew up in Canada. So I moved to Australia when I was 26, which is maybe getting close to 10 years ago. And I grew up in Nova Scotia, which if you don't know Canada well, you might not know where that is. It's like about an hour and a half flight north of New York. So it's on the coast. It's on the the east coast of Canada. I grew up in a really rural area. So it was like a tiny little fishing village and we even lived outside of the tiny little fishing village. So yeah, so I lived there until I was 18 with my parents. I absolutely hated it when I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it when I was a little kid. It was great because there's lots of nature and freedom and, and all of that sort of stuff. But yeah, when I was 18, I, I feel like I'm getting so detailed into my life story. But when I graduated high school, I actually received like a legitimate award for the person who was moving the furthest away. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved to Vancouver when I was 18 and lived there and did my university there. And that's really where yoga became a sort of daily part of my life. I was exposed to yoga when I was growing up because my mom did yoga. She went like on every other Wednesday to do yoga. And then the other day she would go to do Tai Chi at like the community center. And the first like exposure that I had to yoga personally was that she got a VHS tape from the grocery store that was Rodney <laughs> Yee. I don't know if you guys know uh, Rodney Yee. Oh, yeah. yeah. Classic. <laughs> totally. So it was like 90s Rodney Yee. He had on bike shorts and like a slick low pony. I still remember it. And it was filmed uh, in the desert. I've tried to find the exact video again, but I can't find it. And it was like so trending. It was so ahead of his time. <laughs> but yeah, so that's sort of like my early background and then kind of first exposure to yoga. And when I was in university, I was studying psychology. And actually, it was like wanting to drop out of school because I was getting anxiety and panic attacks and they were really intense. My major before was criminology and I switched to psychology to try and figure out what was wrong with my brain. And when I was seeing a counselor, he sort of gave me a couple of options. And he's like, you can go down like the medical route or maybe try 
something to manage stress naturally or try something for fun. And I was like, oh, I remember yoga. I'll do that. And Vancouver is such a mecca for yoga. Like there's so much yoga there that I was, it was just like, I was inundated with choice. So I just went to the little yoga studio that was around the corner from the place where I got my groceries and really started to see the benefits of yoga for mental health. So my anxiety improved a lot and it was it the practice of yoga and meditation and pranayama really helped me get through and finish my university degree. And then as soon as as soon as I graduated, my parents really encouraged me to not drop out. And as soon as I graduated very generously because I do not come from a a family with a lot of financial means, but they paid for my tuition to go become a yoga teacher for my first yoga teacher training. So I, I like graduated with my degree in psychology. And then I think within a month, I was on a plane to go do my my first yoga teacher training in Las Vegas of all places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was an odd contrast to do your training in, in Vegas for yoga, but we had to sign a contract that said we wouldn't gamble or do drugs. <laughs> it was weird. I was like, mm, okay, I don't really feel like I need to sign this, but I, I guess so. Yeah. So that's kind of like my early, early history and early exposure to yoga. And so your initial yoga classes, like you came to them really looking for the mental health benefits. Was it a particularly spiritual is probably not the right word, but I know back in the nineties, like a lot of yoga was just really physical and really vinyasa focused and all about getting sweaty. And I'm wondering, did was it that type of practice and it took you to the place of healing anyway? Or It was, so the very first class that I took in person, apart from that Rodney DVD, was probably in 2004 or 2005, somewhere like, so early 2000s. And the first class that I took was very different than all of the other classes. That teacher was no longer teaching at the studio. Like I just had her for that one moment and then she was gone. And her class was very much focused on like we were practicing together in a circle. It was very dim. It was all about breathing. There was lots of time for like free form movement. But then every other class that I went to at that studio afterwards, it was actually hot yoga. So like room was heated to probably 37 degrees and it was it was not Bikram, but it was a sort of spinoff. I, that's probably not the right word that I want to use, but it's the one that's coming to mind, like a spinoff of Bikram where the poses themselves were different than the Bikram series, but it was hot static poses. And we did do lots of longer holds in the, in that environment. And I don't practice hot yoga anymore. I did. That's the first style that I learned how to teach. For me, in being in Australia, I don't really, doesn't really, I don't need it. In Canada, I feel like hot yoga is slightly nicer because it's so cold. <laughs> but what I noticed or what I got out of it in those early stages was that it was so, I actually didn't ask, am I allowed to use expletives? Oh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Okay, go, for go for it. Cool. <laughs> it was so fucking hard in that just being in that hot room was so uncomfortable. I felt nauseous. I felt this was just a very unpleasant experience to be fully honest for me at least. And we held the poses for so long. So it was a lot of discomfort all together. And then they sort of showed me or the class how to breathe with that. And for me, what that allowed me to do, because panic attacks are sort of like a misinterpretation of your body's physical signals or physical feedback. It's a misinterpretation of that. So it allowed me to be in my body with a lot of discomfort without going into a full-blown panic attack. So it helped me in that way. After after I dealt with that, and I don't get panic attacks anymore. I, I did almost have one a couple of years ago, but they're very infrequent. Once I sort of moved beyond that being a regular occurrence in my life, I stopped practicing as much hot yoga because, because I guess because for me it was so unpleasant and I started to move towards like more gentle styles like restorative or yin or hatha because before if I had approached those styles, I just wouldn't have been able to be with myself in, in that sort of stillness, I guess. 
And so from those early classes where you were just struggling in that <laughs> hot room but feeling the benefits afterwards, like was there a turning point when you just decided like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Like this is what I want to share. I want to be a yoga teacher. Yeah. I make it a policy to to just usually be honest and transparent. So my reason for becoming a yoga teacher was not terribly admirable. I remember being in university realizing that I was going to have like $50,000 in debt for my degree and also realizing that I wasn't going to pursue a master's and PhD to become a practicing psychologist. And I was just looking at my job options and somehow I learned how much yoga teachers got paid. I think they got paid like 55 bucks a class. And I like did the math and I was like, if I teach three classes a day, I think I can pay my rent and my student loans and I can totally make a better playlist than that girl. <laughs> and, so, and so I was like, okay, I'll be a yoga teacher. So it wasn't, it was not profound or anything overly spiritual. It was really just that this thing helped me. I feel like I could contribute. And it, I mean, so naive at the time thinking about the, doing the math and the finances and didn't take account for tax or anything. Yeah, I was also 23 when I became a yoga teacher. So my level of thinking was not as mature <laughs> as it might be 10, 20 years later. And it is one of those things like when you look at the hourly rate, you're like, ooh, not bad. But then when you look at all of the other time and energy that goes into doing that one hour, it's actually not that much per hour if you look at what everything adds up to being in your life as a teacher. Yeah, and that's that's something that I – came to realize pretty quickly that, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this later on because I can kind of like get on my high horse about it a little bit, but after 10 years, or I guess it, I keep saying that, but it's probably like 11 years now of teaching as my full-time profession, teachers are just really undervalued and the way the industry is set up is not set up for teachers to thrive. And I think there's a lot of sort of systematic change that needs to happen in order for teachers to not burn out or not leave the profession because of financial reasons. And then we, we end up losing a lot of our really senior teachers or people who would have gone on to be our senior teachers in the, in the industry because of that sort of lack of support or I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the right word is, but the lack of like job security and rights as a as a sole trader and sort of in the gig economy. And so let's actually get a little bit deeper into that now. Like would you like to share some of your experiences founding and running yoga studios from a studio owner and a teacher perspective and just how it's unfolded in your own life? Yeah. So I when I was in Vancouver and I became a teacher, I was doing the whole teaching 15 to 20 classes a week thing only. And it was all hot yoga. So that was pretty intense at that time. <laughs> and then when I moved to Australia, I took six months off because even at that early stage, I was like, whoa, like I'm busting my balls and I don't really feel like there's much opportunity or room for growth in that way of teaching. Like where, where do you really go? You can't teach an infinite amount of classes and pay rises are not really a thing. So I took six months off when I moved to Australia just to sort of reevaluate what I was doing with my life. And I, I had a decision to make in my mind that I was either going to go back to school and get my master's in psychology, or I was going to go back to teaching yoga, but treat it as if it were a business rather than as if I were an employee. So I mean, obviously we know how that story turned out. I did go back to teaching, but I was committed to actually treating my teaching like I was running a business. And I guess what year was that? So that was like 2012 or something. So like four, five years later, I partnered with two other yoga teachers and we bought a yoga studio that was already running. It wasn't largely super profitable or anything, but it it already had students. It was breaking even. And we took it over as like a little trilogy. And we each took on different roles running the studio. We did that for a couple of years. And then 
did the same thing, purchased a second studio that was already running, same sort of deal, and and took that over. We added a couple of other business partners at that point. So I want to be fully transparent in that I was not the one in charge of the financial side of the business. So I don't have a whole lot to offer in terms of what that was like. But I did the I did the yoga teacher training. I did all the education and the graphic design and the social media and the web sort of stuff. But what I know is that it's a really tough situation because for small independent studios, and I think this might even be the case for larger studios, as we're seeing like all the, the yoga work studios closed in New York and one of the large studios in Vancouver where I used to go, they had closed all of their locations this year as well. It's really like no one's making money. So like the teachers are paid poorly by almost every everyone. Like there are a couple of studios that pay a little better, but it's not even still, it's better, but it's not enough. But the studio owners, at least in my experience, are not making very much money either. We all kept teaching at other places and kept our classes and did all these other things to sort of juggle. And I'm sure like you guys can can relate to that. So Oh, it's why I, I built a studio the- in my backyard because that was yeah, the only way yeah. I could see it kind of adding up as viable, really. Sorry to cut in, go on with your own experience. No, but that's exactly it, right? And we all sort of find workarounds. Like there's, we're, we're all sort of looking for like, we love to teach. We love the experience of connecting with people and sharing how yoga has helped us. But something about the industry doesn't work. And I, I don't think it's working for studio owners and it's def, it's definitely not working for teachers. Like teachers are very, or have been much more vocal with me because I think a lot of the time studio owners sort of keep their, whatever's going on in their business, they sort of keep it to themselves, which fair enough because you have employees and things you need to look after and you don't want to stress them out if you're barely making your rent. So yeah, I just think the whole system is sort of, is not working. And I know that there have been different movements in the last little while, 12, 18 months, um, with the teachers yoga works in New York, which now doesn't exist, unionizing, people like Norman Blair in the UK really speaking out about teacher pay right rates. Yeah, so it's a tricky situation. I don't think that has a simple answer. It's not necessarily like studios are just, especially small independent ones, are just raking in the dough and keeping it and not paying their teachers well. But then also in Australia, on average, I think I did a poll in, in a couple of Facebook groups. Teachers make $55 for a class in Australia. I'm pretty sure that was the correct stat. Maybe it's 60. But in that 55, 60 thing, it's like the average rate that teachers make And Joe, as you mentioned earlier, there's like the before and the after. So at least like a half an hour before you're there and usually like 15 minutes to 20 minutes after. And then you also have to plan your class and make the playlist and do the things. So when you divide that like $55 by three, it becomes a lot less. And what I sort of have done a few calculations and most teachers in Australia, if they were teaching 15 classes a week at that rate would be like just at the poverty line. Like if they were making any less, they would be in that like lower, lower income bracket. And that doesn't even take account tax and all the other expenses that sole traders have to pay. And that that figure, that $55, $60 figure, when I left my teacher training 15 years ago, that was my first gig. That's I made that same amount at a gym and it hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. And same. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. I think there's also this really weird dichotomy, which I know that you've spoken about a bit online as well, but as yoga teachers, really to look after ourselves, we have to really be independent with how we run our own businesses. And yet studios hate that. Like a lot of the time, you're allowed to ask for people's email addresses and build your own mailing list. And there's this vibe that like I've taught a lot of studios where it's like you're all a family, you're all in this together, but when <laughs> the money runs out, you know, like I'm sure I could add up thousands of dollars worth of unpaid invoices from studios I've taught at that have gone out of business and I've never heard from again. Mm. 
And they were all nice people that ran that studio. But I mean, not nice enough to pay their employees <laughs> properly, but that's just the reality. Like it's a really tenuous business. And yeah, there's, I think really as teachers, the reality is you have to look after yourself because there isn't really job security in this industry. And it's so tough because there can be a lot of love and a lot of goodwill and I don't really think that anyone opens up a yoga studio because they think they're going to cash in. It's always with good intentions because they love this practice and they want to share it. But unfortunately, and especially now that the whole economy is upside down, it's a really challenging time for teachers as individuals and for studio owners as business owners. Yeah. So I, I mean, you could probably hear, I have so many feelings about this. It makes me emotional and in an angry way. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that there are a couple of factors at play. One, for the most part, people who open independent yoga studios, like small owner operator kind of situation, are not business people, they're yoga teachers. So they maybe don't have the same kind of awareness around finances and how to have a strategy and that sort of thing. So I think that there's maybe just like a lack of, a lack of knowledge around how to run a business. So many yoga studios or studio owners maybe would even like look at the finances of it and not see the problems to begin with. Like Joe, maybe when you were looking at it, you you did see the problems and you're like, that's why I'm going to have it in my backyard. But maybe people get into it without an understanding of, is this a good like air quotes business to be in. So I think that's one thing. The second thing is what you hit on about the like, we're all a family until we're not. (laughs) And (laughs) that is what makes me upset because there is a lot of spiritual bypassing and manipulation that goes on. And I've heard from so many yoga teachers who have been told, like what you said, you can't run online classes right now, for example. First of all, a yoga teacher is not an employee most of the time. This person who I'm thinking of directly is not an employee. She's a contractor. So unless that yoga studio is paying superannuation, which by the way, yoga studios, if your employees or your teachers, your contractors make more than $450 a month at your studio and you're in Australia, you need to pay superannuation, check in on that. So if they're not paying your superannuation, if they're not providing you with any sort of job security, if your classes could be changed and taken away at any time, why does that studio get to tell you what you can and cannot do when you're trying to put food on the table? And what it really comes down to, I think, is the studio is trying to do what's best for them. The teacher is trying to do what's best for them. And there's a clash in interests and a sense of competition between the two. So like if you put your classes online, maybe our students at the studio will come to do your classes. And I've even had someone in Canada talk to me about a studio saying the same thing. And it it was a really big studio with financial backing. So I'm not sure what's going on there. But it's like, you this for the studio owners, like you don't get to have it both ways. You can't have a contractor have no job security for them, not pay their superannuation, not give them benefits or sick leave, and then tell them they can't work somewhere else. In my mind, that is not a situation that I would want to be a part of. And I would happily walk away from a relationship with a studio who was doing that. And I understand from a studio perspective, but this idea of like scarcity, that if the students will go to you and all of that, like, I mean... If the students go to the teacher rather than stay at the studio, maybe that's just because they really like that teacher and tough luck to the studio. I don't know. I'm probably just rambling a little bit, but like I get quite impassioned about it. No, I totally, I've seen it in so many places and a studio will often have a weird sense of ownership around the people who come there where really it is the teacher that mm-hmm. those students are coming for. They want that experience. They want to come to their classes. And I think students' studios kind of know that. So they try and create 
I guess in some ways maybe the studio thinks they're being transparent about expectations and about boundaries but on the other hand, it's not realistic. And I think realistically, most teachers find a little workaround anyway, because we all have to survive. And if someone asks you about your social media or about what else you do outside of that one or two classes that you teach at the studio, as if anyone's not going to tell them, even if you've signed a contract saying that you're not going to share about your other projects. So it's a tricky one. Yeah. And I, so One of the studios that I worked at, I mean, so it is a tricky scenario, and I think that there are better and worse ways of handling it. I'm of the opinion that let's go back to the time when we all taught classes in person. And in that scenario, I don't know if it's necessarily a good idea for a teacher to promote their stuff that's external to the studio inside of the studio. I think that can be a bit weird. It's like when you're in the space, be in the space. If the students from that studio follow you on social media and you're promoting your stuff on social media, that's a different story. Or if they sign up to your newsletter list, then they cross over and be they're your student because they've, I mean, they're both they're the studio and the teacher. So I don't think it's necessarily like on the teacher's part, great to be like, hey, next week at this other studio, I'm doing this thing. I think that's a bit like Yeah, that feels like crossing the line. Crossing the line, right? But on the other hand, the students have free will to choose (laughs) where they want to go. And I've actually had like legal advice about this. So it's not just me making it up. It's like you have to do the right thing as the teacher and do your due diligence and have boundaries about not promoting your external stuff within a a different client base. But then if that student is on your social media and they interact with you, like that is free will and you don't have to say, no, you can't come to my thing because you're, I've also seen you at that studio. So it's a, it's a tricky thing, but I, I do also think, I hate to use this, these phrases of this phrase, because I think it sounds like a bit woo woo or is there like an, can, can we just have like an abundance mindset and believe in the good in people and that if you treat people well, like your teachers as a studio and as a teacher, you do what feels right in your integrity by not promoting your stuff in inside of the studio. Can we not just for a second think that a student might go to a teacher's class on Zoom and he or she or they might go to the teach a class at the studio? Like, do we have to be so weird about it all? Like, can't we just be like, I hope you do well and your classes do well and I hope you do well and your studio does well. I don't know if there needs to be this sort of like weird competitiveness thing that happens. I don't know. That's just my my perspective on that. And I guess like this touches on another thing, which I know a lot of teachers, actually, I think pretty much every teacher that we've spoken to Everyone has a certain degree of discomfort around promoting themselves (laughs) anyway. And I think there's something in this where like sharing authentically and sharing about what you do and because it it would be really tacky to finish your class and then just list all of your other classes and workshops and things that you have going on (laughs) at every other studio that you teach at and no one really wants to hear that. But people like who love your teaching and love your classes do want to know more about you and what you do. So do you have any strategies for teachers for sharing and for want of a better word, promoting their offerings in a way that doesn't feel tacky and isn't going to be disrespectful for the other places that they teach at and yet allows people to connect with them and what they do? Yeah, and I just realized I forgot to say something, which I'll just finish the thought and then I'll, I'll move on to this because I have a lot to say about that too. One of the studios that I did work at had an arrangement that was quite good about promoting your classes. That studio said you can actually promote your external stuff in your classes and at the studio. If you do that, I get a 10% cut of any student who signs up from that studio. So I thought that that was a way that made it very clear and transparent that there was a value exchange. And if you didn't want to give the 10%, you just didn't promote your stuff in that studio. So I thought that was a a unique way of handling it. Yeah, that's a really innovative idea. Yeah. 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 And it was, I thought it was great. And it made me feel 
like I had a choice and that it was on the table. It wasn't like something that is just murmuring about in the background. And then promoting yourself. I, yeah. And, and look, I have no idea how I escaped this, but for some reason I have zero problem promoting myself. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I feel like I'm the only person. I think I'm very into astrology and I have like a Leo rising in my chart. So maybe that is why, but I always have felt like, I don't think about promoting and marketing like it's yucky if you do it in a way that is of service to people. So what I suggest in this bit, and then we'll talk a bit maybe about not crossing boundaries with studios, is that if you have a thing that you're doing that you want people to buy or show up to, for most of us, it'll be yoga, like a yoga class or a yoga workshop or whatever it is. There's some sort of value that a person would get out of attending that thing. Let's just say it's a yoga workshop on stress. If someone came to your workshop and in two or three hours, they learned some really powerful tools about how to manage stress and anxiety through asana and pranayama and whatever, chanting or meditation, whatever tools you're providing them with, that actually enhances that person's life and could profoundly impact their life, just like we've all been profoundly impacted by yoga and what we do. So if you can tap into your why or your reason for doing the workshop or the thing, all you're doing is offering something that is of value, potentially tremendous value to someone. And therefore, if you don't market it, or talk about it, or get people interested in it, then they will potentially miss out on something that could have had a profound impact on them. So I always connect it to like, if you tap into the why and the meaning behind the thing that you're doing, and you genuinely believe in that thing, if you don't believe in that thing, then you've got some problems, you have to switch to what, what you're doing. <laughs> but if you do genuinely believe in that, it's like, not sharing it with people who could benefit from it seems weird to me. I don't know. So mm -hmm. that's my take on it is I don't think of like, I'm asking you for money. I never feel like the financial exchange is what I'm after. It's, it's what I need. It's what I need to be able to do it, but it's not the, the focal point of the thing when I'm marketing. It's like, I'm doing this thing. I think it'll probably help you. Here's here's how you do it. But I will put this caveat around it. I always, with everything I do, and this goes from like three and a half thousand dollar teacher trainings to one-on-ones with me to being in the teacher's club, which is cheap. It's 20 bucks a month right now. Everything that I do, if someone doesn't have the money and they want to do it, I let them do it anyway. Because I've been in places where I didn't have the money to do things. My parents paid for me to do my first teacher training. If they hadn't have been generous with me, I wouldn't be a yoga teacher. So that also has taken off the pressure of like, I'm asking people for money. It's like, yeah, there's an exchange here, but I also feel good giving it to you for free or discounted or a different price if you genuinely can't afford it right now. So that has also helped take away some of the yuckiness, I guess, around marketing, knowing that I have space for everybody or I can make space for everybody regardless of their financial situation, but focusing on like, what is the service that you're actually providing to the world or to the people who come, come into your class or your workshop? I don't know. I can ramble about that too, but do you guys have any questions if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. And that's a beautiful perspective. Is that something that you came to on your own or have you done training in marketing and in design? Because like, you really have a design eye as well and are a really powerful communicator. Well, I mean, I have done, so I've, I've done some training in business, but a long time ago. However, I would still highly recommend it. It's totally American and kind of cheesy, but the principles behind it are really good. It's called B-School with Marie Forleo. I did that in 2013. So if some of the, some of the idea of focusing on like your why, I think some of that has from B-School has impacted me. And, but the, the reason why I like 
her. And like, again, you do have to get past the Americanness of it all. She's wildly financially successful, yet comes across as very service driven, right? So it's all about service. And as a yoga practitioner and teacher, that appealed to me, right? Because we talk about seva and service. And I was like, oh, cool. I get that. I just like helping people. But I also would like to have money, like <laughs> like all of us, right? Like it's <laughs> it's the reality of living on planet Earth is that we need money to do things and fly home to Canada and pay rent and pay student loans 20 years later or whatever. <laughs> but it's <laughs> so that was one thing that that did help. So in 2013, when I made the decision to treat yoga like a business rather than an employee. So that was right around that time. In terms of design, no, I have zero training. I have not even done like an online course or anything in that. I am just obsessed with it. And it's one of the things that if I re-skilled at some point, I would love to be a perpetual student. I would love to study graphic design professionally, but I just really, really enjoy doing it. And I guess it's one of those things where if you are passionate about it, like video editing or other things like that, you can spend your your downtime doing it and learning it just by doing if you if you do have that passion around it. So so yeah, that's with design and communication. Gee, I don't know. I think it's just maybe from being such a nerd as a child and reading, just reading, 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 reading. I didn't have really I didn't play sports or wasn't really good at anything other than like staying in my room and reading books. So it might just might just come from that. And the the other thing that, and when I was interviewing someone for the podcast, we actually spoke about this. I have a policy of just being honest because then you don't have to remember anything. You don't have to like have a story that goes with this story or whatever. And I always and I do something called the the best friend test. So I have a best friend. Her name's Ariel. We met when we were eighteen. And in anything I put out there, communication on my social media, my yoga classes that I teach, podcast interviews, whether I'm the subject or the, the interviewer, if she was listening or attending or listened to that thing, would she call bullshit on who I'm being in that interview or be like, dude, you really held back there. You didn't tell the full story or why don't you just tell everyone that you learned yoga on a Rodney Yee DVD? Like <laughs> if she... If, if if what I'm doing, if she would recognize me as the same person in my yoga class, on my social media, in my podcast, whatever it is, then I know I'm just, I'm being who I am and I'm being honest and, and it makes communication a whole lot easier in my mind. Nice. So I guess just to change the topic a little bit, we recently talked to Matthew Remsky on the podcast cool. and he's... Well, he's, oh, he's of the, okay. no, it was great talking to him, but he was essentially of the opinion that COVID-19 would sort of be the end of brick and mortar uh, yoga establishments. I was just wondering if you had an opinion on that. Yes, I do have an opinion. I'm taking Matthew's, gosh, what's it called? Something about cult dynamics in yoga and Buddhism. He's doing like a yeah, doing a webinar series on that every Saturday morning here at six a.m. <laughs> I'm enrolled in that. Yeah, I definitely have opinions. I think it will not be the end of brick and mortar yoga studios because people will always want to have a place to gather in community in person with people who share similar beliefs and values, right? Like. For thousands of years, it was the church. And then it's become yoga studios and fitness studios and mindfulness studios. So I don't think that it will be the end of brick and mortar yoga businesses at all. However, I do think that the landscape will change in a way that we couldn't have predicted. So I think a lot of studios who were kind of not doing well, like as we spoke about earlier, where the Profit margin can be very, very small in a yoga studio. I think people who were already struggling a little bit, whether that was visible from the exterior or not, I think they will either be forced to use COVID as an exit 
point, or they will choose to use it as an exit point saying, you know what, it's just all too hard now. So I do think that there will be a lot of businesses that do close, but I don't think that they will close completely. Like, or I don't think all of them will close. So I think there'll be like a reshuffling of who's playing in this space. I think people will be a lot more conservative. I don't know if you guys ever look at what's it called? The maturity curve of an industry, the yoga industry. So you can be like up and coming. I think it's like, I can't remember the first stage, but the second stage is growth. Then there's maturity and then there's decline. The yoga industry by and large is in the mature stage. So there's not as much opportunity right now. It's quite oversaturated. We all know that. So I think that the studios who were vulnerable to begin with will close and then I don't know if you guys know Nicole Cardoza. Do you know, have you do you know of her? I know of her. Yes, yes. Yeah. So she said something that I'm really interested in because obviously it aligns with what we were just speaking about. But she mentioned she thinks that the studios that survive will shift their value proposition away from serving their students which sounds scary, <laughs> to supporting their teachers because teachers have been forced now to become independent, to run their own classes online. I, I'd had a one-on-one -on -one mentoring session with someone who's a yoga teacher who said, why would I teach for the studio? They're paying me $30 to do their online class when I did my own online yin class on the weekend and I made 110. So teachers are starting to find their independence so what Nicole mentioned is that she thinks that studios are really going to have to give teachers a reason to be associated with them. So they're going to have to position themselves in a way that there's a reason that's, that's attractive enough for a teacher to actually want to go to that studio and work at that studio. So, I mean, that could be a great thing, right? It could be better pay. It could be more security could be, hey, we'll actually pay your super now. <laughs> um, so there could be, a, could be a shift, I think. So some studios will close, some will stay, I think, some will stay open and then they might have to shift in that way that Nicole described. Hello, Ron here, back again to talk about our Patreon page. Patreon is just a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 a month. Higher tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. With that in mind, I'd like to thank our latest supporter, Taryn Suriani. Taryn is based in remote, far northern Western Australia in Derby, which is over 2,500 kilometers from Perth. She sent us a lovely email and told us that the podcast helps her feel connected with the yoga community and this is her favorite podcast. So thank you so much. We are so grateful for your support. If you'd like to support us as well, please go to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast and join the Patreon club. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this or anything else. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Cora Giroux. So do you think it'd be more beneficial for, I guess, the more independent teachers or teachers as sort of independent units if that uh, is a word or makes sense <laughs> do you think the the shift will be positive for teachers is that what you're yeah individual teachers as versus studios I guess yeah well I think that there's there will be there will always be like a symbiotic relationship towards or between rather studios and teachers, I think it's pot it potential that it could be beneficial. What I think overall is that the whole pandemic situation that we're in will be beneficial for independent teachers. It will, it will, it will be hard. I think harder for teachers who resist marketing themselves, building an email list, treating their teaching like a business. I think it will be harder for those teachers and the teachers that embrace that. I actually think that this could be quite a powerful catalyst to some of those teachers potentially being 
more empowered. Like I, I know a lot of teachers who, when this happened, they're like, but Cora, I don't have an email list. I've never connected with my students. I'm not on social media. And I was like, well, then you were treating teaching as if you were an employee of the studio. But when the studio closed and you had no rights, you've now realized that you were a contractor. So I, I do think, I do think that this whole situation has the potential to be a good thing for independent teachers. And I think some studios will will continue to do well, but it's, oh man, I've, I've heard a lot of studio owners say the studio feels like a liability at the moment. And I think it will be really challenging as well. Like we've thought about this just, and we, me and Ran, only really have to decide for ourselves as a business. We don't have responsibilities to other teachers but re- like when it's time to start reopening, like how do we navigate that to keep ourselves and our students safe? How do we work out social distancing, even like everyday things like props? It's such uncharted territory. And I think everybody wants to do the right thing in terms of safety and in terms of keeping their business sustainable. But it's like, how do we navigate that? So I guess my question for you is, in two parts, one's for studio owners and one's for teachers. What advice do you have going forwards? Hmm. I don't know if I have the best advice on this, but I'm sure well, I what can. What thoughts do you have? <laughs> I'm sure I can have some thoughts around it. Well, I guess I think it's a I think it's a nuanced and individual situation. So, like for you guys, for example, how many students can you fit in your studio? in the old days, like when it was at full capacity? Aerial yoga, we have eight hammocks and one for the teacher. A comfortable, regular floor-based class, 12 was our maximum. But if it was a workshop that people didn't need that much space, once we had a workplace Christmas party and 20 (laughs) people came and we fitted in 20 mats. (laughs) Right. Yeah, so, so I think, and this is where studios will have to really do the numbers and it's like, If your capacity goes from 12 to 6 or 12 to 5, is that still a viable situation? And I know that, gosh, I know that this sounds terrible, but closing a business isn't the end of the world. Or like, (laughs) or I can say this only because I've gone through it, losing everything isn't the end of the world. You can be resilient after that. So like if you're looking at the numbers and they don't make sense to keep your studio open, hopefully you do pay your outstanding invoices if you can and that sort of thing. But like pivoting is a really important, I mean, everybody's talking about pivoting. It's a really important thing to embrace. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever, or any of the listeners have ever really investigated really successful people who have failed a lot I know I have because I was afraid of failing, but after I've failed a couple of times and realized that lots of successful people fail a lot, it's not the end of the world. Like you can rise again from that. I mean, it really sucks in the moment, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. So know that if like the numbers don't add up, it, it, it may be time to change your business model. In terms of like the actual, if your if your studio does make sense to stay open, I think that like I haven't been a studio owner since October or like September of 2019. So my mind is a little bit out of that game. I know that Yoga Alliance and Yoga Australia are both have released guidelines around how to clean things when people need to wear masks, how to space your mats apart. Yoga Australia, I think, has just released them for the Northern Territory. But Yoga Australia, or sorry, Yoga Alliance is obviously more international. So I think like following those regulations and opening when you feel like it's within your integrity to open again. I know that in Georgia, in the US, they can open their studios Again, they have got the green light from their, gee, I don't know what the state representative is there, but what the name of it is, but they have got the green light to do that. But there are a whole group of studios that have decided to not open again, even though they legally could, because there are, I think 1% of that state has been tested for COVID and 
cases are still increasing and they just don't feel it's safe and responsible to to reopen. So I think it does depend on where you are and when it like you've weighed up the information independently and you feel like, you know what, there hasn't been a new case in New South Wales in a week or two weeks. I'm going to do all of the social distancing measures and I do have access to cleaning supplies. I feel like it's within my integrity to reopen. I think it has to be an individual choice. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think I have a great answer that's not already out there with that. I think that's a really good checklist though of like, look at what your professional guidelines are, look at what the reality is in terms of cases and then look into your heart and see what feels right for you. Like, I think that's a good balance of informed and personal integrity. Yeah. And because we're all yoga people, right? It's like, for the most part, you'll know if it doesn't feel right. It's like, oh, and I think we get into trouble when we ignore that voice or that gut feeling. So it's like, yeah, making an informed decision, but also checking in your own integrity thermometer or whatever to see how it feels. And so that's studio owners. And I think that's great. How about for individual teachers who at the moment, I mean, teachers have already shown so much creativity and so much resilience and a lot of people are really active online. I guess those people already are on a path. What advice do you have for teachers who maybe don't see a clear direction for themselves from here? Or maybe not advice again, the words, what thoughts do you have? Well, I think, I think it's, this is just my, my opinion, so it could be totally wrong, but I think that online yoga is here to stay. Like, I think we've burst that bubble officially. It's no longer a fringe thing. So, and, but marrying that with the idea that there will, I think there will always be a space for in-person live connected classes to me, what I would do, and this is what I, I currently have a have a non-compete, so I can't actually teach at the moment, but what I would do when my non-compete runs out and when it's safe to teach in public again is like rent a community space if you can, start small, keep your overheads really, really low and teach a live class, but also live stream it. You might not have that flexibility If you teach for a studio, or maybe they will let you do that. It just depends on what you can negotiate with them. But I think that sort of blended model of making sure that you have one foot in the in-person world, if that feels applicable to you, but also one foot in the online world. I know that my friends and colleagues, I guess, in the United States and Canada have spoken to me a lot about the idea that we may be quarantining in waves over the next mm-hmm. 18 mm. to 24 months. So even if things do open up, I think it would be remiss to like let your online stuff go dormant because you can go back to the studio because there may be another period of time when we can't be in the studio again. So I think that if you're wondering, should I go online? Everyone's already on there. I don't have anything interesting to say or whatever. I think for your own personal security in terms of your livelihood, diversifying so that when you can go back to being in person, great, but also make sure that you have an online presence in some way that you're offering value. And maybe it's not the same thing. Like maybe you do meditations online and asana in person or whatever. But I think having that blended model will be really, really important for ensuring that there's some kind of security in your livelihood for the next little while. I think as well, it really offers your students some more options as well, because especially if, say, you feel okay to reopen, but they are particularly high risk or someone in their family is, or they don't have the financial means to start attending in-person classes again. Online's just such a great way to make that practice still accessible for those people who can't get to the studio mm. for any of those reasons. And we've, we've had people comment on our live streams that, yeah, that they're in an older age group and they wouldn't otherwise be able to even make it to a studio. So they're really happy that these things are happening. Yeah, 100%. And I'm in the Yoga Alliance 
COVID Facebook group. And there was a, a teacher or a studio owner who posed a very similar question. Like after we go back to teaching in person, is, is anyone going to keep offering their online stuff? And there were maybe like 20 comments and every single one of those comments bar one said, yes, we'll absolutely keep online and in person, online and in person. One person was like, I hate Zoom. I'm never doing it again as soon as I can get out of here. But like the resounding majority of people who are in this space are, are looking at that that thing. Their students want it. It makes sense financially. It's kind of like a, a win-win, I think. And so I guess this is back into your personal journey, having lost everything, as you mentioned, <laughs> six months ago and had this major life shakeup. Is there anything that you can draw from, from that time that you've learned personally or something that really helped you that you'd like to share with people now who are maybe feeling like their lives have been turned upside down and their dreams are suddenly not looking like are going to unfold the way that they'd worked for and the way that they'd planned? Yeah, uh, so much. One, get a good therapist. <laughs> but after, apart from that, the biggest thing that I've learned is that you have to sleep with yourself at night, right? There might be someone else in the bed, but you are there too. And you have to feel good in your heart about the things that you are doing in the world. So if you're ever put in that situation where your integrity is telling you to do one thing, or your heart is telling you to do one thing, but your mind is adding up all these consequences that could come as a result if you do the thing. It can be anything simple. I had a, a student who was on a mentoring call who wanted to leave working at a, at a studio because she didn't like the, working for that studio. And so she wanted to leave, but she was talking about all of these things that might possibly happen if she left. My The biggest thing that I have learned is that you have to trust those gut instincts or that inner integrity barometer or thermometer, whatever you want to call it, that even if you make a choice and you lose everything or your life appears to crumble before you or all of these negative things happen because it doesn't mean that they won't, but it's still worth it. It's still worth it to do the right thing, whatever that is in your heart and your integrity. And all of those negative consequences are less of a burden than selling out, really, I guess, or less of a burden than not trusting yourself or that doing something that you don't feel okay with. Yeah, that's the biggest thing because it's like, I think a lot of us like stay in jobs or relationships or things because we fear the consequences, but we know that they're not right for us. And yeah, and, and you can get through the consequences. I think it's it's actually much easier to bear them than, than the burden of not being true to yourself. Oh, that's such a powerful statement. And thank you so much for sharing so openly and so honestly from your own experiences. I think that everyone's in this really weird time at the moment and has a lot of time to think and a lot of time to do this type of introspection about what do I want to do with my life? What do I want to share? And we are getting close to the end of our time, even though we could talk to you for a couple more <laughs> hours, but we really should get to the question of what inspired you to start the Teaching Yoga podcast? Well, a bunch of things. One, I really like to chat, which you guys can tell, <laughs> and I, I like this format. But one of the other things that I was going to answer when you were like, what did you learn? I think one of the big things also that I learned has to do with, with the podcast is that working, especially, I'll, I'll keep it into the career realm, but working in your personal strengths is really, really satisfying and life giving. And one of the best things that I've experienced, I'm an introvert. I'm uh, terrified of public speaking. I don't, I'm not very physically adept. I don't, I'm not a kinesthetic learner. I don't like groups, but I taught group yoga classes for a decade, which are like all <laughs> of my weaknesses in one 
go. And that was great. I, I grew a lot. But doing something like the podcast for me, it sits in all of my strengths. So I like talking. I like that you and I don't have to look at each other right now. <laughs> I like <laughs> that it's like I can be in sort of my own private little space. I like that it's online. I like ideas. And all of those sort of things are my sort of skill set naturally, like my natural strengths that I was given just as who I am as a person. So that's one of the reasons that I, I started podcasting. And, and I really learned that through podcasting. The second reason, which you and I, or we all have shared, it's kind of like secret behind the scenes, is that it's like the best hack in the world because <laughs> you get to talk to all of these incredible people that otherwise would have no reason to pay me the time of day, but I get to get on a call with them for an hour or so and ask them about their work and what they're passionate about and and all of the things that I really want to to learn about. So I think it's just I think I would I think I would always have a podcast in whatever form or shape my life direction goes in because of the way that you can connect with people who are like way smarter and cooler and more amazing than I am and but then get to have these conversations with them. I know I know you guys have sort of shared a similar thought process. Oh, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of time they become friends as well. Yeah, so yeah. It's, yeah, it's totally. Great. Yeah, it's great for networking as well. And like I didn't set out for that, but it's it it has proved to be that. And and it's just like you get to connect with so many cool people. It's so great. So I love it for that. I also when my life is a bit more on par with this, I would really, 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 really love to go back to school and study journalism, get my master's in that. I am, when I was a kid, I said that I wanted to be a journalist for National Geographic when I grew up. That was my life plan. (laughs) And I'm really starting to like come back into that desire to sort of pursue stories and ideas and get to the, the truth of things. So the podcast is like one of my ways that I get to to feed that outlet before going back to school is a reality. So just side note, <laughs> since you are already kind of being a journalist and making your own media, what do you think you'll learn in school that you're not learning now? Like what's what's stopping you from just going and being that world traveling yeah. journalist? Well, I now know myself a little better and I don't think I'd be the best journalist for National Geographic, (laughs) but nothing. So not, I don't think anything is stopping me, but for example, I'm potentially going to interview a survivor of sexual assault in the yoga world for the podcast. And that is a very different type of interview than what you and I are doing right now. Mm-hmm. especially be- or what we're all doing right now, because there are legal considerations. Australia has some of the most intense defamation laws of like all the Western world. And there are, there are things that I know right now that I could potentially really naively walk into because some of the, the topics that interest me are not easy topics. So if, if I wanted to work in certain quite sensitive regions or anything like that, I would hope that I would just know a little bit more about what is okay to do and what is not okay to do. I did just think about ordering like a journalistic law textbook and just like studying it, but that sounds so boring. (laughs) (laughs) So, so there's things like that where it's like, okay, if I want to do it at the next level, I should probably educate myself a little bit more. And I just like education. So that's the thing. And I think that I could, I could be a better writer. I could be a better communicator. I could be a better, I think that I could improve on it. So I think that I'm taking the like both and approach where it's like, I'm definitely going to keep doing what I'm doing, but when the opportunity presents itself, I would like to just go deeper, deeper into it, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And it's actually kind of interesting because it's a reason why professional development is also so important for yoga teachers. 
to give you that professional grounding and to learn about best practice and your own biases and everything, but also because you love this thing, don't you want to learn as much about it as you can, like just for fun and for your own intellectual <laughs> fulfillment? Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine myself being that annoying person. Like, did you know in 1923 in Australia, the first what color photo was published? You know, so like I'm sure there's there's a lot of just personal enjoyment I would get out of it. But yeah, such a great, a great thing for us to remember as yoga teachers as well. It's like we all do this because we love it and there's so much more that we could be we can always be learning. Nice. Well, as as Joe mentioned, we could probably talk for another hour or two, but um, we sadly have to draw things to an end. But I was wondering, uh, one last question, if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core lesson, what do you think that one thing would be? an easy one to answer isn't it yeah Um, we finish on a like like quick note (laughs) it sounds so cheesy but what's coming to mind right now is just to stay true to yourself I think that's what yoga brings us back to like critical thinking staying true to what in any moment is is in your is in your heart so cheesy but trusting that inner compass I think Nice, beautiful. And we're all about the cheese, so. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for catching up and speaking with us today. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Cora. It's great to talk to you. I've loved every second of it. Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully I don't cringe too much when I listen back when you guys release it. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Cora. She is great and has so much knowledge to share. And if you haven't already, go and check out her podcast. I'll leave a link in the show notes. For our next episode, we are speaking with Alice Williams. Alice is a yoga teacher, a writer, and the author of the book, Bad Yogi. Bad Yogi is Alice's hilarious memoir that delves into her life as a writer on an internationally famous Australian soap opera that you're neighbors might be a fan of her experiences of completing a teacher training while coming to terms with an eating disorder so it's a really really good book and we had a fun time catching up with her so look out for that episode in two weeks time our theme song is baby robots by go soul and is used with permission get his music from gosoul.bandcamp.com Joe and I would like to honour the elders of these wisdom traditions of yoga and mindfulness from India and Asia. We'd also wish to honour the traditional custodians of the unceded land where this podcast is recorded, the Rundari people of the Kulin Nation. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love.